teacher of young people. Welcome to Everything <laughs> Imaginable, a podcast for curious minds from KGRA Radio. And here is your host, Gary Cochulillo. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I'm your host, Gary Cacciolillo, and today we have John Horgan. He is the author of Pay Attention, Sex, Death, and Science. This is our second try at this. That's why I'm kind of laughing about it. Thanks for coming on. My pleasure. I'm going to hold up my book real quick, if you don't mind. It just came out on Amazon yesterday, uh, and... Um, I'm really excited about it. So anybody who's interested can uh, can buy a copy. Uh, I don't know when this is going to air, but uh, if it airs soon, they can get a copy even before Christmas. Wow. But, but it's not for children. Don't buy it for don't buy it for children. Really? The kids don't like uh, sex, death and science. Uh, it's just got some stuff that's a little bit uh, adult, I'd say. <laughs> so uh well, what what brought you to uh, writing this particular book? Well, I have a lifelong obsession with uh, with the mind body problem, uh, which is really just the relationship of of uh, our relationship with the world. So we humans are are just chunks of matter. Um, made of protons and uh, electrons and neutrons, just like all other matter. And yet we have minds and emotions, thoughts and feelings. So uh, what's the relationship between those and our own bodies and the rest of the world? Uh, Related to this is the whole, it's our inner life. All the thoughts that are always swirling around in, in our heads right at this moment as we're sitting here talking to each other. And I normally approach the mind-body problem from the outside, the way that scientists try to approach it. Uh, And there are limits to that. And in part, it it doesn't really do justice to the complexities of thought. And so I wrote this book, Pay Attention, as a way of trying to understand my own mind, all the different crazy feelings and thoughts that are swirling around in my head at any given moment. And I'm especially interested in how my attempts to be rational, to understand the world in what you might call a scientific way, are all entangled with uh, feelings, emotions, uh, related to love and sex and um, anxiety about my own mortality and uh, encroaching death. so basically in this book, I, I try to put out all the thoughts that I have in a typical day. So this is like a stream of consciousness account of one day in my life. And, um, and whether or not anybody else is going to be interested in reading it, it was wonderful to write because it was kind of like an exercise. And it was, I thought of it as a kind of meditation, trying to sort of stand back as thoughts are crossing the threshold of my own attention and look at them and, and analyze them and then to put them on a page in words. So that's, that's what this book tries to do. Wow. That's uh, quite a bit. <laughs> um, so, so how did, how did these, it like, sounds like you're kind of connecting the abstract part of mysticism with everyday life and how they interweave together, you know, through science and sex. And, and just the daily thing is money, work. Like, how, how, how do you put all that together into one coherent piece? Oh, I don't know if it's coherent. Uh, that's for readers to decide. It's, it's my, my own thoughts aren't necessarily coherent to, to me even. You just... But what you just said about mysticism and everyday life is is um, that's something that's really important to me. So I grew up in the 60s. I was an acid head when I was a kid. Uh, I was also interested in meditation and yoga and these ways of uh, getting us into altered states. So my idea 
of uh, mysticism was these revelations right. where your mind is blown and uh, you see the world in this entirely different way. Mm -hmm. And I had plenty of those um, when I was younger. And, uh, and actually, I've never stopped taking psychedelics. I still have taken them up until uh, pretty recently. But I decided at some point, you get diminishing returns right. from those kinds of hallucinatory experiences. At least I did. The, the point of mysticism to me is to have a shift in your worldview that uh, changes the way you see things all the time. So when you're, in my case, commuting to your job, when you're hanging out with your girlfriend and watching a movie, when you're, um, when I'm with my kids mm -hmm. and trying to connect with them, when I'm just doing ordinary things, the challenge for me is to try to take some of the feelings that I've had while meditating or high on psychedelic drugs and see the world that way all the time and recognize that this is how the world really is. In my case, it's, it's seeing the world as infinitely improbable as, as, as a kind of uh, ongoing miracle no matter what is happening, it's the most humdrum possible part of your day. I'm grading stu student papers and you step back for a second, you pay attention to that moment and you realize that it's, it's, it's beyond belief. <laughs> Every moment of our life is beyond belief. That's what mysticism is. Right. And that's, that's what I aspire to, to feel that way all the time. That's, that's incredible. I think that's something, you know, that I've, I've only recently kind of got in touch with is the idea that just the fact that I'm here is a mystical experience, you know? And like you, I've spent a lot of time, especially in my younger years, you know, doing things like acid and angel dust and mushrooms and, you know, all these, you know, listening to music, all, all kinds of things to try to alter my consciousness, you know, hoping that I would find out some kind of elusive answer to life. And, to find out that the, it's just right here. It's, it's, the answer is life itself. The fact that we're here is unexplainable. They're, they're, I, I don't know why I'm here. I don't know what I am. I don't know where we really are. I don't even know if I actually exist. <laughs> yeah, man, you're, that's, that's it. Uh, I, I think that's, the, the problem with maintaining this point of view is that our our brains are designed were designed by natural selection for you know getting shit done for um, surviving and um, get, making our way in the world reproducing uh, having offspring those sorts of things we're these biological creatures and um, our brains are focused on, on these various tasks that we need to accomplish to fulfill our biological function. And this leads to this kind of habituation uh, or we, we tend to learn things so well that we have to, things that are really crucial to our functioning that we do them on automatic, we become zombies. Mm -hmm. um, uh, the kind of sleepwalking robots, and we stop seeing the world. We're just focused on whatever our, the task is at hand. And sometimes we're not even really that aware of the task. Um, we're just sort of doing it on automatic. And that's why it's, I think we need, some people are just in a mystical state all the time. I think most of us need to remind ourselves of what is actually out there, of the the, the weirdness of our own selves and the weirdness of, of the world, or we stop seeing it. <laughs> and so this is actually something that I try to do now primarily through my own writing. My writing, mm -hmm. a lot of my writing is about the weirdness of the world and the weirdness of myself. 
and I'm a science writer. And one of the wonderful paradoxes of science, you know, I've been writing about, about science for almost 40 years now. And science has told us so much about the world, but the more it tells us about the world, the weirder the world is. Science isn't demystifying the world. It's making it more mysterious all the time, more improbable. Uh, physicists don't have a clue where the universe came from. The more we learn about the Big Bang and the origins of the universe, the more we're baffled about how it began in the first place and about how it produced this particular universe with these particular particular laws, which somehow allowed for our existence. And the, the origin of life is also a total mystery. The more we look into the origin of life on Earth, and as far as we know, this is the only planet, this is the only place where life exists in the universe. We haven't discovered it any, anywhere else. It might be elsewhere, right. but so far this is it. Scientists don't have a clue how life began, which is really quite amazing. And then consciousness, conscious life, life that became complex um, and intelligent enough to sit here and have a conversation like the one we're having right now. Mm -hmm about the weirdness, about the mystery of life. Uh, scientists are completely baffled about how consciousness emerged um, from matter and from just basic biology. Uh, so this is how I think science, and I, I wrote a whole book about this called Rational Mysticism. It came out about, I don't know, 18 years ago. and. Uh, I was looking for compatibility between science and mysticism. There are a lot of divergences, but the, the, the way they, they converge is that science tells us that the odds are infinite that we should exist, infinite. And yet here we are. And for me, a mystical experience is, is just a, an emotional, visceral, realization of what science tells us rationally and intellectually so where we just basically go i don't know am i allowed to swear on this show sure yeah, yeah. so you basically go what the fuck like what the fuck uh you know if we saw the world the way that it truly is all the time our jaws would be hanging open we'd just be going like oh my god what the fuck <laughs> Uh, and, and actually, that's it's hard to live that way. Right. So that's why we have these programs of habituation and automatization and, you know, that, that make us just these robots. But you've got to see the world that way <clears throat> now and then because, because I, I mean, for me, that's what life is all about. It makes life worth living to, to see that it's this ongoing miracle. Right. I mean... I don't know. I, I think maybe I could do without the autopilot part of my life. I would be cool with just laying in the field somewhere all day and all night trying to figure out exactly what is this? Uh, you know, I have I have a friend, uh, Robert Wright. He's a really great science journalist. He wrote a book called Why Buddhism is True. It became a bestseller a couple of years ago. And uh, and he's been pestering me for years to go on a on a Buddhist retreat and to meditate more. I've done a dabbling, I've dabbled in meditation, but I, I sort of I'm I'm down on any kind of path uh, or religion. And Buddhism is definitely a religion, in spite of what some people say about it. But I finally decided to go on a retreat, as he was insisting, and and I thought I'd go basically just to shut him up. <laughs> and. Uh, you know, so it wouldn't work. And then I'd say, okay, I did it, Bob. It didn't work. So like, yeah, shut the hell up. But it worked. It worked amazingly well. Basically, all I did was what you were just saying. I I mean, we're supposed to do meditation exercises and all this stuff. I did right. some of that. Mainly for a week, I just lay on my back on in a on a this big lawn. It was a retreat center up the Hudson always. And I watched clouds float by. And I, and it, 
it ended up blowing my mind. I'm normally always thinking about what have I got to write next? Uh, what do I have to do for my next class? Um, you know, I told my girlfriend I'd do something for her. What was that? I'm always like busy, busy. And then I, but I just, I just basically thought about nothing except, oh, there, there's a nice cloud. And, uh, and it was a profound experience. It made me realize that, or made, I mean, you know, there's this idea of enlightenment, the supreme mm -hmm. mystical state. And for me, the, the, I felt like I had a taste of enlightenment in this retreat. And it was just, it was the old cliche of being here now. I, I mean, where I, I just was content to be in, in each moment, either literally or metaphorically watching the clouds float by. And it was, it was mind blowing for a week. I didn't do any drugs there, but I felt like I was tripping for a week. Right. The world was like popping at me, it was bright and shiny. And I was walking around with this big stupid smile on my face all the time. Um, and, uh, and it was wonderful. And again, it was, it, like you say, I wasn't doing anything really, just just watching the clouds move mm -hmm. by. Yeah, for, for me too, meditation was a real game changer. Um, you know, I mean, I, after all that stuff, like as a kid with the drugs, I stopped and I would say, well, it was about 30, so it was about a little bit, about 25 years ago now, I, I <clears throat> Um, started going to like a local Buddhist group and meditating. And I remember like the first time I did it, I was like, oh, <laughs> you know, it's just, it kind of blew my mind because it, it, it reminded me of that drug experience. But what I was really experiencing is just my current reality is just as yeah. trippy as any of my regular hallucinogenic trips. Like life is really kind of bizarre. It doesn't, it doesn't add up. And that, that realization through meditation rather than using something outside of myself made it even more intense. Yeah, I, I think, you know, I was trying to, we weren't supposed to read or write. This is a silent retreat or talk to each mm -hmm. other or anything. But I actually cheated. I had, I'm, I'm a writer. I had to write <laughs> some stuff down. And so I, I started having these experiences on my second day at the retreat. And I was like, what the hell is happening to me? And, uh, and that I, the, the metaphor I came up with was that, you know, people think about enlightenment as this, this place you go to that's, you're not there. You have to go there and, uh, or, the, or this thing that happens to you and, and the paradox, and I've heard this said before, but I never realized what it meant. The paradox is that as soon as you look for enlightenment, it's, it's run away. <laughs> yeah, you're not, it's, you don't have it. Mm -hmm. And so, but I didn't realize that until, until this retreat, the metaphor I came up with was, you know how, so we both wear glasses. I, I often I'm looking for my glasses. Where the hell are my glasses? And I have them, right. I'm them <laughs> and I'm like, oh my God. It's like, you know, I, I've been looking for enlightenment when it's, it's, I already have it, except it's, it's not even glasses or something that you put on. Mm -hmm. It was like, I was looking for my own eyeballs. You know? Exactly. Where are my eyeballs? God damn it. Lost my eyeballs. <laughs> oh, wait. <laughs> here they are <laughs> so I felt kind of like you know there's that that thing that Homer Simpson says and the Simpsons he's only when he realizes that he's been stupid he goes which happens pretty often it happens pretty often to me um, he goes dull and so I had this dull moment uh, where I thought oh yeah it's like I'm already there. I don't have to look for it. It's right here, right? Like, I mean, I'm in the middle of it. And so I actually um, then started using dough as a mantra. Right. I, I meditate in the morning, morning and I go, 
Dough. <laughs> I I had re- I wrote a book called um, Enlightenment Guaranteed, the only book on Zen you'll ever need, and, and I received a little criticism, like not from my Zen teacher, but my teacher's teacher. You know, he's like, "What do you mean Enlightenment Guaranteed? That's like the most egotistical, arrogant thing that you can write on a path that's supposed to be egoless, right?" And I was like. Well, you know, the idea of the book is that I can guarantee enlightenment because everybody's already enlightened. <laughs> that, that's really cool. Uh, so the, the teacher that I had um, was, uh, his name is Lama Surya Das. Um, and uh, he's actually this guy who grew up in Long Island uh, named Larry something. And... Um, and he, but then, you know, he's a little bit older than me and he went to India in search of enlightenment, like a lot of people and uh, came back and bit and became a teacher he, after becoming an ordained um, Lama. And uh, he's from the Dzogchen tradition. Do you know that? Mm. Like DZ, Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. The idea of it is that we're all already enlightened. Sometimes we're just too stupid to see it or to realize it. And it, so it's, it's basically trying to get you to realize that don't chase it. Just be right where you are and you have it. Uh, and so your book sounds, yeah, I think you're a Dzogchen teacher. <laughs> Formally, maybe. <laughs> I also had, um, Another, she was a Tibetan teacher, but she used to always say, like people would always ask her, what is enlightenment? What is enlightenment? And she would kind of, even though she wasn't Zen, she was Tibetan, she would always answer with the koan. She'd go, it's shit on a stick. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, and I, I know what that, that term means because of the, of the story behind it, but people would just look at her like, what? <laughs> You're supposed to be a, a, a Buddhist nun Zen uh, Teachers supposed to be like, like love or compassion or something like that. Not shit on a stick. <laughs> yeah, I I think this is why I don't like any paths, including Buddhism. Even though you know I, I love this Buddhist retreat and and I love this this uh, Buddhist teacher that I had because they you know they make it this path and there some some of them are really commercialized. And there's all this stuff you have to do and you've got to, you know, have reverence for the teacher and the teachings and all this kind of stuff. And the, the, the Buddhist um, aphorism that I like best is if you meet the Buddha in the road, kill him. Right. Because it's, 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 I mean, to me, what that means is, all the the sort of rituals and the doctrines and everything the paradox is that in a way they keep you from being enlightened and they make you think that the enlightenment is out there it's in buddha when actually it's in you so if you meet the buddha in the road that's not enlightenment because the buddha is inside yourself Mm -hmm. right so destroy those pretenders out there i mean you know, still have compassion for other people. We're all in this together, but uh, enlightenment, enlightenment is, is the birthright of every one of us. Indeed uh, it is. And, and I think it's, it's fun. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. It, it's, it's a much more enjoyable way to live. Um, one, I think it's enjoyable to live because I realize how silly people are that think they people that think they know something, it's just it's just like we, we don't know anything. <laughs> yeah, I the older I get, you know, I became a science writer because I thought science had the potential to explain the universe to us. I took that very seriously, and I, you know, I'm I'm not a I'm not one of these uh, postmodernists who think that. There is no such thing as scientific truth. Science never really discovers anything about the world. Science is, has discovered a lot. It, you know, it's 
we have this map of the universe from the largest scales down to the smallest. We kind of have a timeline of the history of the universe and of, and of Earth and life on Earth. And, and we know really the basic laws of nature embodied in physics and, and uh, biology. But in spite of all that, uh, we really, when it comes to the big questions, you're right. We really, and especially questions about ourselves, uh, we know we know virtually nothing. As much as we know, there's still an infinite gap between that and whatever ultimate knowledge, if that even exists, mm -hmm. uh, might be. Uh, and it, that's sort of a weird feeling. I, you know, for a lot of people, they don't like that. They want to have certainty. They want they want some kind of big answer, whether from science or philosophy or religion. Religion is still our main source of, of answers. You know, where did all this come from and what are we? Well, you know, God created this and we're the children of God and we've got immortal souls. And if we behave in a good way, then we might get to go to heaven. So that's, you know, that's an answer. A lot of people believe in that. It's to me, ridiculously inadequate right. as a response to the mystery that we're in, as is the Big Bang Theory and the standard model of particle physics and mm -hmm. general relativity, which are the answer that most scientists give, which also doesn't come close to, to really answering the questions we have about what the hell we're doing. Here. I think it gives us more questions than answers. Yeah. Yeah, I, I was doing an interview this morning about time and you know time is something that we we completely rely on you know we gauge our entire lives on time but yet we do not have a good definition of it of what time is yeah um you know i'm i'm on a for the last six months i've been uh trying to understand quantum mechanics. I, I mean, I've been writing about quantum mechanics for more than 30 years now. And uh, I've written articles about it for Scientific American and, and other publications, um, especially my uh, first book, The End of Science, had a lot about quantum mechanics. But I've only understood quantum mechanics from the outside. I never understood the mathematics of quantum mechanics. Mm -hmm. I don't understand it the way physicists understand it. So. As kind of a COVID project, I figured I'd finally learn quantum mechanics the way <laughs> physicists learn it with the math. Uh, this is because all my summer plans were canceled. And, uh, and what's fascinating about it is that I've gone from superficial confusion about <laughs> quantum mechanics to really profound confusion about quantum mechanics. Uh, it, what I realize is that the physicists don't really know what they're talking about. When it, quantum mechanics is just this, it's, it's a wonderful theory because nobody knows what it means. And it raises questions about things that we normally just take for granted, like time mm -hmm. and space. Uh, relativity does this too, but quantum mechanics is even more radical. Right. And in the way it challenges kind of, you know, just our bedrock assumptions about how the world works that, you know, we're, we're, we exist in three dimensions and we're sort of moving this way through time. Um, all that is up in the air because the mathematics of quantum mechanics is so weird and convoluted and it doesn't match up against any of our common sense assumptions about how the world works. Uh, and so as a result, people are still asking questions like, what the hell is time anyway? <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and, and what's interesting to, to me is that some physicists and philosophers, and I have a lot of, you know, professional uh, explainers as friends, philosophers and physicists, physicists who try to explain quantum mechanics. 
And what's funny to me is that a lot of them still think that at some point they'll understand quantum mechanics and what it says about the world and what it says about reality. Mm -hmm. There's, there's a book about quantum mechanics that came out recently generated a lot of discussion called what is real. That's, that's what we want to know. Um, what is real? And, uh, and it, it, I think it's funny that people think that that question can be answered because all the evidence points in the opposite direction. The more we <laughs> learn about the world, the more we can't, we don't have a clue what is real. We don't understand what matter is. We right. don't understand what mind is and how matter and mind are combined. How do they relate to each other or time or space or any of these things, which is great as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> you know, one of the things that I find really interesting about this topic is that um, mystics and yogis and shamans from thousands of years ago kind of arrived at some of the same questions and same theories that we're coming to with science now in the 21st century. It's like, yeah. how did they explore it? How, how did they test their theories? You know, it, it doesn't, it, it's just so strange that they came to like, some of the same conclusions and, and they kind of line up. It's just amazing. Well, the difference is, you know, I'm, I'm now I'm going to show my, colors as a mm -hmm. science journalist and you know a writer for scientific america okay stick up for science just in that the difference is science really gets shit done you know so quantum mechanics despite every what i just said about it being just kind of exploding our pictures of reality is the most powerful theory ever invented in terms of leading to applications uh leading to our ability to predict uh the results of experiments with right. unbelievable accuracy our ability to understand things that are going on billions of light years away to understand uh the origin of the universe and how sh stars shine um and why stars blow up and it's led to um uh, computer chips. Mm -hmm. The whole digital revolution is is intimately related to quantum mechanics and you know hydrogen bombs and stuff like that too. <laughs> so technologies. So some of the philosophical implications of quantum mechanics and physics more generally do converge in some really interesting ways with uh, with mysticism, Eastern mysticism. And mysticism in general but science is really this separate thing because of this enormous power right. that it that it gives us over nature power for good or for bad mm -hmm. unfortunately too right so it still kind of leaves me with that same question though you know how, how did the mystics know what they knew you know with Without science, you know, because they didn't have the ability to test a theory over and over and over again, put it in a mathematical formula, and and, and keep repeating and, and showing the results. But it seems like some of them did, but without the tools that we have now. Well, I think some of the convergences between mysticism and uh and quantum physics are happening at the level of of metaphor mm -hmm. and i don't think we should take them too literally it's sort of like saying that uh hey you know astronomers basically show that the bible was true when they discovered the big bang theory you know it shows that the universe had a beginning Mm -hmm. uh, what's interesting is that a lot of cosmologists, people who are wondering, you know, the, about the structure of the universe and where the universe came from, didn't believe in the Big Bang theory at first because they thought it was too Christian. But then the evidence just became uh, overwhelming. So I see that as as 
you know, the details of quantum mechanics are just totally bizarre and there's no precedent for them in, in philosophy or human thought, except uh, at the level of some mystic saying, whatever our categories for understanding reality, they're inadequate. Mm-hmm. And that's what some philosophers are saying. That's what Niels Bohr said, for example, about quantum mechanics and what many philosophers uh, today say. It's what I, I take away from, from uh, quantum mechanics. Um, one, one difference between science and religion that I think uh, that I still am struggling with uh, an apparent difference is that I think all of mysticism and religion and spirituality, what all the systems, spiritual systems have in common is that they say that this universe is really all about us, that we're at the center of it. Uh, You know, I was raised Catholic. And so Catholicism has, you know, a really obvious version of this. God created us. We're the children of God. Um, and, uh, you know, that we exist to fulfill these goals that God has for us about how we should behave. Um, you know, so it's this whole elaborate metaphysics, but we're at the center of it. And the scientific uh, version of this is that the earth is the center of the universe. All right. And it's natural that we have these ideas about ourselves versus the rest of nature because every human being is a natural narcissist i mean i'm the center of my own universe you're the center of your own your own universe and we also anthropomorphize like crazy these are very deep-rooted instincts in us um but i see it as one of the great triumphs of of human thought that you know with with uh, Copernicus and Galileo and Newton and people like that, they moved away from geocentrism and said, you know, here's this other model. It makes a lot more sense. The earth is just this little, little tiny ball revolving around the sun with all these other little tiny balls. Uh, and then eventually we discover that, you know, the sun is just one of all these other stars in this big island universe, the Milky Way. And then the Milky Way is just one of an infinite number of other galaxies. So all these things sort of put us in our place. And yet we still have, and I still have, this, this desire or this feeling that this has got to be about us. Everything. Reality must be, this can't be just a coincidence. Um, you know, it can't just be this incredible stroke of luck that we exist uh but that's what science says mm-hmm. and and that's a very disturbing thought because the, it means that we weren't inevitable mm-hmm. we're here through luck and we could vanish in an instant and this is i'm not sure how that meshes with mysticism and spirituality um and th- this is kind of i'm expressing i'm basically saying i have there are two parts of my brain here. One is the rational part, the right. scientific American kind of jerky science writer part that doesn't like supernatural stuff and flaky new age spiritual stuff. And I say, no, of course, you know, we're here just through a coincidence. There's no God or anything like that. But then, you know, the acid head in me and the mystic in me says, man, it's awful hard to believe that this, this miracle is here just by chance. That to me is like the central, I think it's unanswerable, but to me it's the central paradox of uh, human existence. Do you you think we're part of a larger consciousness? I, you know, I've, so I had, in a couple of my books, I describe a, a drug trip I had in 1981. Uh, you know, it was the trip I always wanted. I think every acid head, you're always looking for a trip where you, you know, you, you go flying through the veil 
and you see things how they really are, mm-hmm. right? You want, right? You want to see the truth. You want to really know what's going on. And I had a trip like that. And uh, it was on this, you know, like, I know this is going to sound like a bullshit hippie story, but it was actually a, like an experimental drug produced for the military, mm-hmm. <laughs> like a super psychedelic uh, chemical warfare agent. And uh, I got really high <laughs> for about like 24 hours. Uh, and I was, for most of that, I was in a dream state. I was, I was out of my mind. I didn't know where I was. I was having all these visions there. Fortunately, there's some people around me who were taking care of me. Uh, I, they were really scared, but anyway, um, <laughs> I survived, but I, I had a vision of myself as, uh, as this, well, first I, I had a vision of the whole universe evolving infinitely far into the future and gradually turning into a giant computer, one giant computer, one giant thinking machine. And, uh, and I reached the end of time and I was, and I, I could do anything I wanted. I could think of anything I wanted, uh, create any reality I wanted. So essentially I was, I was God, even, you know, although I was thinking of it as mm-hmm. this giant computer. And uh, so first I thought, okay, I want to feel as good as it's possible to feel. And so I started just like having these like wave after wave of ecstatic pleasure. And I got bored with that. And I thought, okay, something new. What am I going to do now? I know I'll try to figure out where I came from. And so then I thought about that. And, uh, and then I realized that, there was, there was no answer to that uh, because I was all that there was. It'd be like God wondering where, you know, where did I come from? Mm-hmm. Normally, you know, you're thinking that there will be somebody else to answer that question, but that's it. You're God. You're all by yourself. And so I had, I had this, this huge identity crisis. <laughs> and, uh, and then I, I felt like I kind of, broke up into lots of pieces and um i eventually came out of the trip and i remembered this whole this crazy vision and i'm trying to figure out what it meant and i decided that uh, there is a god Mm -hmm. there is one mind behind everything this creative mind and this creative mind is undergoing this colossal identity crisis um it's basically god freaked out by being god and as a result of that, in kind of desperation to escape his or her or its own godhood, creates this world. And so one way I've, I've thought about it is that God has a severe case of multiple personality disorder. <laughs> and, and we're the altars of God. And so this is this is basically saying that there's this mind and intelligence behind everything. Uh, So part of me absolutely believes in this. And part of me realizes it's completely psychotic. Uh, And that, you know, it's this delusion uh, that I had because I was tripping and it's a reflection of my own narcissism and, um, and my own fear, I, you know, my, I, because uh, my, my theory depends on God being fearful, uh, fearful of his own non-existence, mm-hmm. fearful of his own solitude. So this is all a long-winded way of saying, I do think it's possible that could, there could be one cosmic consciousness, but it's a, if, if it is, if it does exist, it's a really fucked up consciousness. <laughs> It kind of goes along though with the same lines of like what Kabbalists would would describe the universe because it's kind of like you know God wakes up one day he's like shit what the hell is going on and then in his quest to to figure it out he has all these creations and the idea is to make all these creations figure it out and come back to him with the answer. This. After, so I, I had this experience in 1981. I never, I talked to a few friends about it, but they'd always look at me like, what the hell, man? That's, 
like really fucked up. You should probably be on, you know, sedatives or something. You need to see a psychotherapist. And then uh, I sort of kept it to myself. And then I wrote about it at the end of my first book, The End of Science. I had this chapter called The Terror of God. And, uh, and you know, the rest of the book was all of this science stuff. But then I thought, okay, I'm not going to throw a mystical experience in it at the end. And I had no idea how people would react. And I, I probably got more letters just about that section than any other part of the book. And a lot of people told me, I had thought I was the only person who had this crazy idea of God being mentally ill. And uh, all these people told me it, it arises in the Kabbalah. It also arises in Gnostic mm-hmm. teachings. Uh, Carl Jung has written about this. Uh, he was in a psychotic break and also had this idea yeah. about God being mentally ill. A lot of people have had this idea. Uh, so it's, it's, I, I, can, I realize why it hasn't become mainstream because most people <laughs> want to think that God knows what the hell he's doing. That's kind of the point of God that, you know. Don't worry, somebody, he's going to take care of it. <laughs> yes. You want to think that somebody, the person who's in charge is competent. To think that he's profoundly mentally ill is, is like disturbing. Uh, but it's fascinating to me that this idea has recurred and has, has popped up in these widely separate um, areas of human thought. It is interesting. I, I, and I guess it's, it's also interesting because I, well, I was curious, I was listening. I was wondering like, if you were, at the time when you were having this trip, if you were already had been exposed to things like Kabbalistic teachings and stuff like that. Um that what was really interesting about I, I've spent in decades now trying to understand this trip. Uh, my book, Rational Mysticism, which I said came out of like, uh, I think 2002, 2000, 2003, I wrote in large part to come to terms with this trip and other mystical experiences I'd had. And uh, in addition to this particular part of the trip, I had all these other visions um, that were really wild and and sort of really well-designed, kind of cinematic, as though somebody was directing my visions who had a, a huge budget, special effects mm-hmm. budget, and could do all this amazing stuff. I had visions of, you know, being the first cell ever created, the first living thing on earth, and then evolving into all these other different things and and i i went through a period when i felt like i was a, a like a caveman on the african veldt mm-hmm. apparently during that part of the trip my sister was with me said i was trying to dig holes in our lawn right. and she's really getting worried about me and i i had all this dirt in my face and in my on my eyeballs uh and then I, you know, I went into the future. It became very sci-fi. I became, like I said, this giant cosmic computer. And I, I imagined all this giant network being inside me, consisting of light that was transmitting all these signals. And, and all these other visions that were related to, I don't know, the Bible, mythological creatures. And when I came out of it, I thought, where did all that come from? it felt like uh, it couldn't have come from inside me. Um, I mean, my dreams normally are really stupid, really stupid and ordinary, just cobbled together out out of dumb shit that happens to me. Mm -hmm. This was like so elaborate and so sort of beautifully designed. I felt like it wasn't coming from me. I'd, I'd gone into some collective unconscious or something with all these archetypal forms, uh, which is not an idea that a scientific American writer should be having. Right. right? Do, do you uh, think that instead of them being visions, that they could be memories? I think, so when you say memories, I mean, it could be that it actually was that every single one of those visions could be traced to some 
movie I saw or to a book I read or something uh, to my Catholic upbringing. Um, but as I said, some of it just seemed like so far out. I, I mean, like um, as in, as in like an actual memory of creation, not of something that you've seen, but a memory of your, your entire experience of time. Or maybe as a collective, even maybe everything only exists as one cell. That's see, that was the kind of supernatural Jungian um, interpretation that I that I ended up leaning toward because I, I sort of felt like I was having visions of things that had happened and and will happen, um, which the skeptical, hard nosed, scientific part of me says is impossible. Uh, but you know, in mysticism, there that that idea happens all the time. You could say, you know, if you wanted to be sciency about it, you could say every one of us is carrying in our DNA a kind of memory of um, right. the history of not only our our species but of all life on Earth. Mm -hmm. uh, and maybe somehow that memory is also related to uh, a history of the whole cosmos. Um, I don't know. I have, I have, I sort of, I have this experience that I set over here and it, it's the most important thing that ever happened to me. But, um, but I still am kind of at a distance from it. You know, it's so crazy. And, uh, and I, my, my own skepticism and rationality are very precious to me. And so I don't want to, own it too much, I guess. Mm. Can you get any more of that stuff? <laughs> uh, <laughs> it sounds it's good. Funny. <laughs> it's funny. Yeah, no, I wouldn't recommend it. I, I was, uh, it really shook me up. I, I was in college at the time and I was seeing a, this woman and, uh, and the, and I, I was sort of, I came out of this and I was, shaken to the core I, and I, I had flashbacks constantly uh i i thought that i had discovered the secret of the universe and that that meant that the universe and that and that wasn't supposed to happen and that i had the power to destroy everything because there would be you know god is not supposed to we're not supposed to know this you know that god mm -hmm. is mentally ill and so i you know i I was nuts. I, I had the experience of I'd be walking around in the street and, you know, cause like I said, we're all altars, just different little fragments of God. And I had, I had, I had this feeling of sort of bolts of electricity going out of my eyes into the eyes of other people and this loop coming down through the street and up into me again, really crazy shit, uh, which scared the hell out of me. I probably should have seen a psychiatrist. Uh, I thought about becoming a monk and just contemplating this experience for the rest of my life. My girlfriend broke up with me because she thought I was nuts and I was. Um, so it took me about a year to sort of get my shit together. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and that, that's actually when I, I became a science journalist in part to put this experience behind me. Um, and uh, and move on from it. And I'm lucky I didn't end up in a loony bin. <laughs> you and I are kind of similar in a lot of ways because I would say, like, like after I graduated high school, <clears throat> I, uh, I think I bought like a half an ounce of angel dust. Oh my god! <laughs> and I did it for like an entire summer. For for, for three months, that's what I did. I smoked angel dust. <laughs> and and I, I don't know, like it, it definitely changed me, my perspective and everything so much so that I was like, all right, I am done with drugs. <laughs> I'm not doing them anymore. And I, and I haven't really since then, you know. Um, but and then recently I, I had a seizure and I was out, out for about 30 minutes and I was in this vortex and it was color and it was, and it was really, really nice. And I'm just like, wow, you know. Um, not that I, uh, and when I came, when I woke up out of it, it was like I wanted to go back, you know. And since then, like you know, I've been I I don't want to go back to doing drugs. I'm kind of like okay, I'm not 
I'm not doing that because, you know, I, I don't know how it's going to turn out. But now I've been like experimenting with other things like binaural beats and um, sacred geometry and, 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 you know, different colored light bulbs <laughs> and, and different types of chakra meditations and, and all kinds of, st of stuff like that. And um, because I, I think that our consciousness is is a way to find some of the answers that science cannot explain yeah. or may never explain. Absolutely, except I, I don't, I don't know if I'd use the word answers. I think mm -hmm. what I hope to get, what I look for is. Um, just seeing the world, seeing the world anew. As I said before, there are, our brains are designed to turn us into robots who get shit done. Yes. And it's a challenge to, to, to actually see the world for what it is, for the miracle that it is. And it's not, when I'm in that state, it's, it's not like I'm going, oh, so that's how things are. I'm not getting answers in that sense. It's more like, holy cow. Uh, it, it's, you see that the world is beyond belief. Yes. Right? Yeah, any, that's a good way. Any beliefs that you have fall so far short <laughs> of explaining it. Can I just ask you, your seizure, what, do you, what, happened was it epileptic i th i think so I, I you know it's one of the reasons too I, I i quit doing the drugs and alcohol is because i would always like black out or fall over and and wake up like you know an hour or two later and um so so that's one of the reasons that, that i i had stopped was because of that and after you know, I would have like mild seizures throughout my life. Like I, I, but I was young. I ignored them. You know what I mean? I'd like fall out and I was like, oh yeah, I just didn't eat today or <laughs> something like that. But this one, the last one was like really bad. I was at work and it was an ordinary day and I just went boom on the floor and, and Jesus, that was it. The people, are, the people around you must have been really scared. Yeah. And my wife was there and because we worked at the same place. She thought I had a heart attack or a stroke or something or, or died. You know, she was all freaked out, and uh, and I didn't wake up until like I, I I heard her shouting at me in the background. I'm just floating around in this void, having a good old time, and I hear somebody yelling, "Gary, come back to me! Gary, come back to me!" And I was like, "Oh shit, it's my wife!" <laughs> and I really opened my eyes, and I was in the ambulance, and she was in there yelling at me. <laughs> wow, but it was a positive experience. Oh, it was awesome. It was mind blowing because. That made me really realize, you know, that that I don't think I'm just this body. Yeah. I, you know, I just had this conversation just within the last couple of days about this, uh, a, uh, this, this famous neuroscientist and mystic named Francisco Varela. He was one of the world's leading neuroscientists. And he also was really into Buddhism and meditation and mysticism. And uh, he died about 20 years ago, uh, but he's still very influential. And, uh, and he told when I, I interviewed him when he was he was actually dying of liver cancer. And he told me that, uh, you know, he'd had very ex various experiences on psychedelics and meditation, but nothing that really affected his metaphysics until he was having an operation on his liver and he is under anesthesia. And uh, so he was, you know, unconscious, mm -hmm. but then he woke up during the operation and uh, he had an experience of himself as, as a spirit that was part of a, this ocean of consciousness. And he said, he realized in that moment, that he couldn't die. There was nothing to die. That he was this, this yeah. consciousness that was part of this infinite field of, of, uh, of consciousness. Yeah, and, and 
and that's why like with my podcast ever since then I, you know I started this podcast and one of my 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 topics that I always come back to is like you know near death experience and out of body experience and things like that because um it's not faith based but at the same time it's very reassuring <laughs> you know yeah like like I'm not asking anybody to believe it but but I think the more stories and experiences that I get out there about that experiences and they don't all have to be the same you know I had interviewed somebody who had three near death experiences and each one was completely different than the other you know that they 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 happen as like you must experience what you need to experience at that time. There's something really interesting going on in science right now that, that I've been writing about a lot that's related to these experiences. Uh, so if you go back 25, 30 years, when I, when I was really writing a lot about, I was, I was still a, a, a staff writer at Scientific American. I was writing all these articles about the effort to understand consciousness and all this. And, and everything was just about, it, it was all materialistic, You're trying to understand consciousness in terms of stuff that's going on in the brain. Uh, reality is matter, it's stuff. And mind is just like something that matter does in the same way that gravity is. What's happened over the last 15 years or so is that some of the world's leading philosophers and scientists have challenged materialism or physicalism or whatever you want to call it they've challenged the idea that reality is matter mm -hmm. they've said that some of them are saying that mind is at least as important as matter uh this is a kind of dualism there's another uh view called panpsychism which says that consciousness pervades all of matter it pervades the entire universe but then there are some who are, who've resurrected this old I idea with a really bad name for it. It's called idealism, but not like, you know, moral idealism. Right. Just basically that mind is fundamental, that we think there's a material world out there, but that's just an illusion created by our minds. Uh, so I have some problems with this stuff, even though my, my, ass, my, my drug trips make me sympathetic toward it. But it's fascinating to me that this is happening. This is one reason why a lot of scientists are really into Buddhism right now. Mm -hmm. Psychedelics are going mainstream. Yeah. Uh, lots of research on psychedelics being done at, over, across the river for me over at NYU, down at Johns Hopkins, other universities across uh, the country and, uh, and the world. Um, mysticism is being taken very seriously. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of cool. It's like, Science is so conservative, but right now, this moment is almost like the 60s. Things are really percolating or kind of wide open. Yeah. This is actually a good time for you to have a podcast like this. <laughs> Thanks. You know, also, like, with the psychedelics, um, one, one of the things that happened to me also is, like, when I was younger, going through grade school and high school and stuff, it's embarrassing, but I was on the freaking short bus, man. You know, I was not at all a smart kid. And after that three months on Angel Dust, I was able to go to college and ace it. Okay. <laughs> so I, I, I do think that, that psychedelics and, and, and drugs do have a valuable, can be valuable in um, helping people with like, especially like with learning. They can be. They help rewire sure. the brain a little bit. Yeah. I, listen, I, you know, I've been, I, I've, I've been part of the, the counterculture and the psychedelic scene for a really long time now. I know a lot of people like who, you know, write books about psychedelics and, and, um, and there's some people who seem kind of wise and light and enlightened. And there are a lot of people who are assholes and who are idiots <laughs> in the psychedelic realm, just as there are in the whole spiritual realm. There are a lot of right. people who are yes. delusional. So it can go both ways. I'm guessing that what happened with you, and I think I think this happened with me too, is that I don't know about angel dust, Jesus. 
It's good stuff. <laughs> I only I smoked angels just once when I was like eighteen, and I felt like somebody hit me over the head with a baseball bat. I didn't I, I never wanted to repeat that experience, but it sounds like for you, it awakened your curiosity, and that's what makes people good learners, is that they they just start wanting to learn stuff. They look at the world and go, oh my God, there are so many things to know about this world. I want to learn some of this stuff. Yeah, it, it, like, it, it snapped me out of that robot mode, kind of. Yeah. I was like, oh, I got to get up, go to work, pay the bills. <laughs> In my case, you know, I, I, uh, I, I was like such a hippie acid head that uh, I didn't go to college at a high school. I, um, I became this sort of wandering nomad. Mm-hmm. That's what um, I did too after high school. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And and that actually was in part because of drugs. And then I finally went back to college in my late twenties and finished it up. Mm -hmm. Then I went to graduate school and I was like every teacher's pet because I just was so eager to learn stuff. <laughs> I, I feel like education is wasted on on young people. That some I think it's good to get a little. Yeah, experience under your belt and know what you're there for. Yeah, yeah, me too. Like I, like, you know, I, I, I got out of high school. I went on a crazy angel dust binge. I was playing in a punk band and living in a car. <laughs> Good for you, man. And you, uh, and you survived. I'm still alive. <laughs> and here you are with a goddamn podcast. That's right. I'm winning. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And I'm writing these crazy books that, you know, maybe nobody will read, but at least I wrote it. Right. Yeah. I don't know if anybody reads my book either. <laughs> I know people listen to the podcast, though. So that's that's good. It, I'm, I've really enjoyed our conversation. Yeah. Me too. This was awesome. Um, so before we wrap it up, where can my listeners find you? Uh, I have a, a website called johnhorgan.org. And um, I also write uh, at least two, sometimes more columns a month for Scientific American. Unfortunately, it's behind a paywall, but you can see a few columns every mm -hmm. month for free. Um, I have a, a book that I posted online for free called Mind Body Problems. And so it's at mindbodyproblems.com. And it's got a lot of the stuff that we've been talking about. Yeah, so I'm all over the place. Awesome. So all those, I'll send, send me those, all those links afterwards, and I'll put those all in the notes of the episode, so my listeners can check it out after they listen to us. I will. I'll do that as soon as I get off. Awesome. All right. So I'll play the outro, and we'll wrap it up. Thanks for coming on. Hey, my pleasure, man. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable on KGRA Radio. You can reach Gary at everythingimaginable2020.com or email him at everythingimaginable2020 at gmail.com. He's also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn. You can buy t-shirts, coffee mugs and other merchandise to support the costs of producing this podcast. Click on the merchandise link at the top of his page www.everythingimaginable2020.com Oh yes, I almost forgot. You can buy his book, Enlightenment Guaranteed. It's the only book on Zen that you'll ever need. And it's on Amazon. It'll change your life. Because remember, everything that exists was first imagined. Hey, if you love what you listen to, don't forget, rate, review and subscribe. Hey man, where do you where do you find that 